it, uh, it just coming from uh, so much of it is is unacknowledged bawadanha. You know, the, they kind of dismiss the the refuges. Refuges aren't an important. You know, there's no refuge really in the Vipassana movement, and uh, and as though it's 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 based, it's more kind of therapeutic and. And uh, me and based on my practice, my views about practice, or and uh, if and that is uh, not really. Uh, I don't see people contemplating that. Where and I see that you can't really get much perspective on that until you do have a faith and a refuge, a place. In, in just being aware, where you you don't have to feel that you've got to have something to hang on to, where you you know if you don't have a real sense of refuge, you're not if you don't have faith, then you can't really let go of everything. You've got to hold on to something. So you because just survival and this ego is still very much uh, the the motivating force in your life. And the only way you can really let go of the ego and, and everything is trusting in the refuge. You can just jump into the abyss or just let go of everything because uh, because you have faith. But if your if if your practice is based on my practice and me getting someplace, and and, uh, and and then on very controlled techniques and controlled retreat situations, I think it just it would tend to increase the sense of me. If there's no if there's no real uh, kind of a, uh, emphasis on trust and faith in the refuge. And this is a religious part. It's not a. It's not meant to be just therapeutic. Uh, you know, to get your act together so you can kind of transcend your problems or solve your problems. I call a therapy method. And then the uh, the, the spiritual path in any religion is based on faith, really, on the on trust. And and that where say Western Buddhists. You see, we don't tend to we tend to come to Buddhism out of intellectual interest rather than real faith. So the faith is like faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha is 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 cultivated, developed over the over the years, but at first it doesn't really mean very much. We say to a, a, an Asian Buddhist, it's very much a part of their uh, cultural value, you know, Buddha Dhamma Sangha in Thailand. You don't really have to, uh, you know, people have already have faith in it because it, it's a kind of basis of their culture. And in Burma, like the Burmese method is Mahasi Sayadaw and all that kind of uh, austere, kind of stripped away vipassana. Is is really a, a probably you know it's coming out of a country where everybody has tremendous faith already. So, so but the Westerners when they do it when they start with the with that kind of stripped away method, they, 
it, it leaves you with, with, a, with a technique and, a, and maybe an appreciation for tranquility and discipline, but I can't, I don't see, I don't see, a, see it as liberating, it's, it's so highly conditioning. It's, uh, it tends to be such a powerful conditioning process. Like you meet, some people are very naturally intuitive, like Marion. <laughs> and interesting to talk to someone like Marion, who's who's come to Buddhism, who's had the insights uh, before she's even a Buddhist, because of a strong intuitive nature. So her mind is very uh, sensitive on that level before she even uh, knew anything about Buddhism. And then coming to Buddhism from and being influenced by the Vipassana scene, she found that the Vipassana scene in very Massachusetts actually bunged up her mind. She got she got on Vipassana retreat at Marion and her her whole her her intuition stopped working and she became this this tense Vipassanini. Because she was taking concepts out of, you know, mental concepts, uh, and trying to to apply them to to experience based on ideas and techniques and theory, <coughs> and so that that cuts off your intuitive mind. Your 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 no longer your mind isn't receptive anymore because you're working from ideas alone. You're not you're not you're not really Opening the, the the jitta to to its natural receptive state. So then you get into doubt. Because once you start operating from ideas and thoughts, then you, your mind will your self view and all this. You get into doubt and and despair as a result. I would say most of us didn't. The intuitive mind was not very highly developed. Or recognized anyway, and so you you ended up with uh, coming, you know, appreciating the rationale and the the theory behind it all, but but it was uh, but it's taken a, a deliberate attempt to let go of all that, you know, of all the kind of patterns and theories and ideas and that of the of one's own conditioned mind. And more and more, your intuitive uh, sensitivity is aligned, is a, a, and your intellectual appreciation of Dhamma is coming together. Like I find in my own life, where the, the intellectual uh, appreciation of Dhamma, such as the suttas or the scriptural works, the Pali canon, and the, the Buddhist teachings, has, has come down through the tradition, through the scripture. And then combined with intuition is a very, very, uh, is a perfect marriage of intellect and heart. And then the, then the sila is, uh, is also the, the foundation for that, the stabilizing uh, foundation of action and speech. The Sila Samadhi Panya path, or the Eightfold Path, Middle Way, the 
that's where they with the but as long as one is interpreting Buddhist teachings from your own conditioned mind, you know, like like trying to Americanize or modernize Buddhism, tends to corrupt it because it you you really need the you need the traditional form in a fairly accurate and pure way because it it's you don't want to you don't want to manipulate or or rearrange it because it, it, the rearranging would all come out of out of the ego you know me and what I think modern Europeans should know and my interpretation of Buddhism and and uh, and that I don't I would you know that's what a lot of the Buddhism of the Western world is these days it's a kind of new new age new inventions. Uh, new new uh, explanations of uh, Buddhist teachings. But uh, when they with somebody like Lung Po Cha, with his kind of emphasis on on the kind of keeping within the kind of traditional Vinaya. At first, I thought, oh, that's you know that's really conservative, and, and uh, my my American mind tended to to think that that was a, an attachment that he was attached to the kind of very rigid views of Vinaya. That's how I saw it, but that's how my mind would interpret it. So if I, you know, if I, if I left Wat Bapong at that time and went back to the States to kind of start my own movement, <laughs> I would have made a real mess of it. <laughs> so, so, because I didn't understand it. It took a while, it took years of actually living there and kind of living that way and, and that, that one began to uh, appreciate it and understand what it, why Lung Po Cha did it, uh, did it the way he did, why he was so insistent on keeping within a kind of traditional uh, interpretation of Vinaya and uh, then uh, then his his teaching, well, he just taught Four Noble Truths over and over again. And, you know, his reflections were always on the Four Noble Truths. And he didn't have much use for Abhidhamma at all, any of that stuff. He talked to him about Abhidhamma, and he, just Abhidhamma gives you a headache. <laughs> if you read Abhidhamma, you just, you just start doubting everything. And I noticed that when, when Venerable Ananda Maitri was here, you know, he'd give his Abhidhamma classes, you know, fairly, you notice the monks and nuns, and they fairly confident in their practice, they'd attend one of his talks on Abhidhamma, and they'd come out looking totally perplexed. <laughs> I thought it's true. So, Abhidhamma, not to, not to, uh, Put it down as a waste, but it's it's not it's not it's not the heart. It's not the essence of Buddhist teaching. So Lung Po Cha didn't didn't really uh, have much. Didn't really you know use it. And then uh, he used the thing, this, the the four noble truths mainly, is the and the Vinaya. And to me that was that was brilliant because coming from a from uh, my background, where I've been through the uh, 
university system, <coughs> in graduate schools, where you <coughs> endlessly accumulating knowledge about things, and and your mind is just burdened with with facts and figures and ideas. And uh, the thing that I was really relieved, the relief of living in a Wat Pa in Thailand was that it was, it was, he just said to not bother with any of that and let that just open the heart and live within the restraint of the Vinaya and uh, watch what happened, observe, which was something I found very difficult to do at first because my mind was conditioned to always be trying to figure it out on the, on the conceptual level understand it uh, through words, ideas. But to me that the idea the, the fact that, that, that Buddha Dhamma can be put in such a simple formula of four noble truths or uh, and that, that means that and that's all you really need for your practice is uh, it's just to, to know what that is, you know, even on the intellectual plane, just to take that that much, and then you apply that to experience of life, suffering and the origin cessation of power, and within the restraint, say of sila, physical, you need physical restraint. Uh, you have to determine to live within a, a restraint on action and speech. Otherwise, you're, you're all over the place. If you don't have a sila, you, you, your mind, you just tend to, you know, find yourself going every which way, doing all kinds of things. You need to have a, have a pen, you know, kind of be fenced in. And uh, so when, you, when you're rattling the gates, <laughs> you suddenly have to give up, you know, you just... Just exhausted from trying to get out, you finally give up to the to the limitation. Then you can contemplate uh, things. You, your mind will then be more receptive to actually the time and the place you're in because there's nothing else to do. Or if you could get outside the gate, you'd find a lot more to do. Like in monasticism, like on this retreat, trying to to keep it simple and and so that you're you don't have a lot to do. And then a lot, some of you really find that difficult. You find, I notice when the freeze and the pipes and all that, some of you really look pretty happy and relieved to be able to be doing something. <laughs> <laughs> Run about doing something and sitting there uh, trying to watch the desire to do something. <coughs> So I've never felt, actually, I've never felt any need to know very much about Buddhism because of that. I mean, like, uh, I have been criticized for not being a, an academic scholar on the suttas or knowing Pali fluently and, and being uh, an expert on the uh, suttas and all that. And, uh, and that was the one side of me would like to uh, like that also but then I also know it's not really necessary 
<laughs> no, I, I don't. Uh, I, I, my, my main practice has been, has been with, uh, over 25 years, has really just been uh, with uh, developing insights into the Four Noble Truths. The teaching, really, the, rather than kind of being authoritative on the texts and the scriptures. Because to me, the, the kind of, the perfection of this religion lies in the fact that you can, it's so utterly simple, the handful of leaves, the, uh, you, you don't need, you don't need to spend your time or your life kind of preparing in, you know, like studying, getting degrees and knowing a lot about the scriptures. And, but the Buddha, uh, the, the, the wonder of the teaching lies in the fact that it, it is, even if you couldn't read and write, you could still, you could still, uh, it wouldn't make the slightest bit of difference in, in being able to practice it. That illiteracy is no obstacle. Well, if, you know, if, and then in Thailand, where you meet monks who have this, uh, so many monks that have spent years in the Buddhist universities and uh, <laughs> have incredible knowledge, and they, and they, but they haven't practiced. They say you don't get any sense of real peace or, or profound wisdom. You, they, they're usually quite good at telling you what's in the Majjhima Nikaya or the Sangyuta Nikaya. <laughs> Yeah. Also, like Buddhism is relating it because one was brought up as a Christian, uh, recognizing that that my uh, conditioned mind is very as uh, easily uh, used to at least was very tended to interpret things very in Christian ways quite easily because. That was easy to do because the Christian uh, symbols, Christian tradition was very a cultural foundation. And then, uh, but the thing with Buddha Dhamma is that it it is the elephant's footprint. All the, all the Christian teachings, everything fit into it. You know, it's not like it's an exclusive teaching that that uh, it just. You know, it, it, uh, it's, it, it's not like excluding all religions or other approaches. It's, it's, a, it's, it's aimed so that, that it includes all, all possible forms of religion in, it, in, its, uh, in the footprint of the elephant being the biggest footprint. All other footprints fit in it. No, that's why the, the Christian teaching, the Christian uh, attitudes and that which is good or or benevolent or wise within Christianity is not is you know is is appreciated as a Buddhist. You're not you, you don't become uh, anti-Christian or or uh, you tend to appreciate the, the the good things in other religions. So I find now. Uh, like I find, because uh, the kind of 
my heart feels so so good these days that I quite appreciate uh, things that before were utterly kind of uh, anathema to me. Which is somebody gave me a little figure of Ganesha last year. I had quite fallen in love with it. Where before I would, what a grotesque image. Imagine worshipping a god with an elephant's head, looking at it in very maybe Western attitude or a a Christian Christian attitude, which is you know the graven image or the or to to think of uh, some a, a deity with an elephant's head is uh, is uh, grotesque in the Western sense, isn't it? But then, when you when you when you kind of let go of your own uh, things and start looking at it for what it's intended, its religious purpose, you know, within the Hindu uh, religion, one finds it quite a pleasing, lovable figure, a happy figure, and amusing, and jolly. This kind of it, it manifests these things. It radiates these qualities out to me. So living in it's, it's it's in my my room, so when I look at it, it's kind of it kind of it's a jolly figure, sweet. <laughs> so uh, before I would have just dismissed it as an absurd form of Hinduism. Now I, one can it's within the footprint. Uh, it isn't. It's not. It's not something, there's not anything wrong with it. Where when one is kind of attached to, it has to be this way, and no other way is right. Then we get into the kind of fundamentalist habit, you know. I'm right, you're wrong. And <coughs> the, uh, it's only through Theravada Buddhism and all the other forms are, <laughs> or, or the old Christian. I was brought up as an Anglo-Catholic in America. All, all other forms of Christianity, <clears throat> well, they're semi-right there, but they're all inferior. This is a kind of arrogance that somehow the, the, the church in the form I'm in is, is somehow better than all the rest. And the, like Judaism does that, doesn't it? It's very, it's Jews and Gentiles. You can only you can only be born as a Jew. You can't really become one. So you you it's a it's a whole perception of life based on dualism, them and us. And then Christianity, Islam inherit that. It's all part of the karma of a of a, of them and us, monotheism, and where the the. Uh, Form, say, of, of where I find more kind of love for the uh, Asian religions because they 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 allow for every possibility, <laughs> which, uh, which I definitely uh, feel more attuned to. I find Ganesha more pleasing delivery than the uh, crucifix of Jesus. <laughs> But I have a I have a crucifix in my room actually. It's my father, when he died, he 
It's a, it isn't one of these agonized ones. It's, a, I think, with the ascendant figure of Jesus on the cross. So it's not kind of, you know, blood and guts crucifixion. More of a ascendant, a joyful look, a joyful looking one. <laughs> you, you don't, uh, you know, he's not predictable in the Western sense. He doesn't uh, react in the way that he should, according to the Western idea. But he's more or less when trying to survive himself, because I, mean, he, I think his days are numbered, really. <clears throat> and, uh, to come out of it with some maybe some some kind of positive image like being a martyr or some kind of Arab patriarch I'm just guessing uh, anyway this is really he's done some blissful state of of just not feeling anything at all. Just a kind of maybe a moronic <laughs> smile and, and, and total non-feeling for the rest of your life. Because thought uh, in itself, tend, we tend to, like I said before, thinking and perception, it has no feeling to it. The word love, uh, and just to think the word love, doesn't mean that you love not the same as love, is it? Or these are you can you can have ideas about how everyone should love each other, and uh, and hold to these views and still not feel any love at all. And that, that's because of the function of the mind that that level is 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 outside of the realm of feeling. Emotions tend to be frightening, I think, especially in. The, in uh, in Britain, uh, people I think very much frightened of emotions. They're always regarded as you know kind of, kind of stiff upper lip and don't don't kind of express how you really feel. Uh, is an attitude of, of uh, very much inculcated in people in this, in this country and. Uh, you go to India, I mean, you find that people express everything. You know, I mean, people uh, express their anger and their love quite, I mean, it's too much. It's too much the other way, where, <coughs> where uh, you wish they would be a little more restrained. <laughs> I come from a family where emotion was never expressed. You didn't, you didn't express how you felt. You never admitted anything. You just put on the, the show of uh, being good and obedient. And you didn't, weren't supposed to upset your mother or father. So it was, the, it was an emotionally dead family I'm from. And uh, the result is that emotions 
have always been embarrassing for me. And uh, um, even though I have, you know, I'm not without them, or with strong passions, this, this side has, has had to be really uh, turned to and examined and welcomed rather than just, than just uh, using monasticism as another form of suppressing it out because monastic discipline and forms can be very suppressive as you well know you sit here and, and you just sit on top of your emotions and you can you you have it, when everything's ordered you don't you're not called upon to to feel very much towards others you can, your your relationships are quite formalized and, and ceremonial hierarchical so you you uh, you can get out of a lot of things in a, in a in a monastic form. Well, I say in marriages and that you you know you it's more difficult to to uh, to keep that re- re- distance and reserve because you're having to you, you don't have the the uh, disciplinary rules and the agreements on how to behave with each other. So you see in modern marriages where people just uh, kind of use each other as emotional objects, blaming each other, or you know, <laughs> or just emotional blackmail or, or uh, intimidation. So much of what people call you know relationship is is really just a kind of. Um, Using each other in some ways, for because of not knowing how to do anything else. So one needs forms, you know, like even marriage needs to be given some kind of quality, some agreement where it it's not just that kind of idealized. We should love each other for for eternity, and then after five minutes, want to murder each other. Where the, you know, where the, it's based on just romantic impressions, which don't last. Romance is a is a very uh, fleeting experience for most of us, isn't it? It's not nothing to build anything upon. So the like I say, monast- This is why reflecting on monastic form. On, because it is a, a reflective form, it should, therefore I, I've been emphasizing how to use it for that and not just as a repressive form. It's not to just be restrained as an act of, of suppressing your feelings. You know, I mustn't feel like that and I mustn't be like that. And, and uh, just, to, just to, as a, a kind of rigid standard to control your life. It's, it's not renunciation, nor res- proper restraint. It's just ignorance and suppression, and then the result is is very unpleasant. It makes monasticism a very unpleasant experience. You know, in, uh, in our, because we have prescribed relationships, according to Vinaya, and we have um, disciplinary disciplinary rules and tradition 
but it's it's we're learning to to use it for for reflection for be for be paying attention for understanding for looking at rather than just coming from ideals of monastic life and then feeling disillusioned with it because it isn't it isn't is it isn't doesn't always fit the ideal of monastic life we we can we uh, are now uh, looking at our own feelings of despair or disappointment or disillusionment like when I feel disillusioned when I used to feel disillusioned with monastic life one could you know the critical mind could go and say well it's it's you know it's it's not what I thought and I'm disappointed with it and blame monastic life it's not it's not what I thought and it's a and it's, therefore it's at fault. Or the reflective practice is to observe that feeling of I feel disappointed with this. It's not, it doesn't live up to my standards. Uh, it's not what I thought. And then you're, then you're beginning to, to really uh, see how, what it really is. Where the problems really lie. Where what is the cause of suffering? Do you think monastic discipline, monks, nuns, all these cause you suffering? Then you're still in, uh, coming from the avicca, bhajaya, sankara. You're still thinking that that it's the external things that make me suffer. When you get the external things right, when everything fits the ideal, then I'll be able to really get somewhere. When all the when 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 everything is what it should be. And I listen to this in my son, uh, you know, kind of conceit that that I want everything to be ideal for me. I want the ideal teacher, the ideal monastery, ideal monks and nuns, ideal lay people. Everything should be it should be like this and it should be like that. It should be uh, always this for me, you know, so that I can really practice. And because nothing is really as perfect as it should be including myself you and the tradition and everything then it's 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 your fault and I can't get my practice together because of you which is the whinging mind isn't it the the kind of dependent child that says mommy love me and it and it's because mommy doesn't love me that I'm unhappy or the, the society should be fair but it's not so therefore because society is unfair it's ruined my life so that means you're set up to be a victim as long as you believe that then you're life's victim because wait, who, which one of us here has had perfect perfection for perfect parents perfect everything it's because that's not it's impossible, isn't it? Where's a perfect country? I can't think of one perfect country in this on this planet. And I think of my parents, I think they were pretty good, but they were certainly not perfect. And they did things that certainly gave me wrong uh, views and, and caused me all kinds of confusion and problems. My mother and father, even though they loved me, 
because they weren't arahant and wise sages, then they they did, you know, they had their emotional problems too. Imagine, you know, having a baby and and uh, having to uh, go out and work and and do all these things, and and they're not arahants yet, and then they do, they make mistakes, and they get frustrated, and they they feel unfulfilled in their own lives, and they get, and of course uh, they shouldn't be that way, should they? When they had me, they should have been, they should have gone through a vipassana retreat, at least attained sotapanna, stream entry, and they should have, they should have had everything prearranged so that when I came into the world. I would not be subjected to this unfair conditions or inferior situations. So it's my mother and father's fault. Does that does that ring true to you? Is that how you want to be? Is that someone like that blaming everything else because the world and parents and societies and teachers and a whole lot aren't what aren't living up to the high standard that we imagine they should they should be able to. But life is like this. It's not we're not uh, we're not victims when we see that that we don't need perfection to 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 practice and to realize Dhamma. We don't have to have the best or come from the the you know a an untainted background and have the best of everything because it's like this we can we can work with life as we're living it with its all its imperfections and its inferior qualities and its uh, unfairnesses and injustices and these aren't these aren't obstacles to our enlightenment unfairness injustice all these things are not obstacles to enlightenment. Having rotten parents is not an obstacle to enlightenment. Or just having ordinary parents that aren't arahants or even sort of parents, that's not an obstacle. So the obstacle the Buddha pointed to is the dhanha upadana bhava problem, the desire and grasping and becoming out of this ignorance. That's the, that's that's where the that's where you put your attention. Once you see that, then um, then we are, then you're okay. You can whatever life brings you and whatever has happened to you is just part of your karma. I am heir of my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma. It's, it's one's karmic uh, inheritance, and we learn from that, whatever it is. So some of the most horrible problems and um, faults, personal faults, and that, rather than being obstacles, are oftentimes the catalyst to enlightenment. And some of the some of the de- the the gross defects and the and the uh, I mean the hopeless flaws in our character and emotional nature. Say when when seen in this uh, from the position of Buddha seeing the Dharma, then it is 
those 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 things that really hurt and and seem unfair and seem to be you know weigh on our minds and be tremendous burdens and obstacles to us then are really the the, the dukkha that takes us to the realization to have faith and to practice and to realize truth That's the that's the wonder of the, of this life of Buddha Dhamma is that it's it's telling you that what whatever uh, life brings whatever happens to us that isn't really terribly important it's it's how we understand it how we deal with it how we use it and that that's something that we learn to do it's not something you you should expect somebody else to tell you. And uh, instruct you, like here at Amarbati, you can give give kind of reflective talks and advice and encouragement, but you have to do it. I mean, you, there's no one that can do it for you. And even though you you try and you fail, you keep learning because it's like it's it's important to just keep going, not to to let failure be an obstacle to to your spiritual development. Failure is very much part of spiritual development. So saying being brought up in a family where emotions were were almost uh, unrecognized, instead of being a burden or an obstacle to enlightenment, is to me a very helpful opportunity. Because I've really... Uh, because of the suffering that comes from being frightened of emotion and, and unable to to express one's feelings and, and all the fears that go along with that, one I've I've learned to use that as an object for reflection. Because it's the suffering feeling feeling uh, frightened of what other people think. Like if you're from one of these families, you're always you're always trying to be proper and good. So and and you're praised for being that way and then you're you're criticized for not being that way. So you there's this desire to there's an incredible concern about what others think of you. miserable to always be worried about what others are thinking. <laughs> so take that. I've taken that. I think this, this in Thailand or here in Britain or whatever that 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 feeling arises. I start feeling, oh, this person doesn't like me, or or what do they think of me, or maybe I shouldn't have said that, or that's a kind of self-concern, one uh, can take that as an upaya or reflection. Remember, I, I was one who could get offended easily. It's easy to hurt my feelings. When I was a child, I was called a very sensitive child, which means that I was easily offended. 
So my mother said, you're so sensitive. <laughs> so, and and then when when you grow up, you you know you're not quite as uh, you know you, you learn how to to maintain some demeanor of coolness and you know aloofness and I don't care what you think, bugger off. But actually, you're really concerned. <laughs> Then the, then the reflective mind is looking at that. So I've used it like the uh, in Thailand when Lumpur Cha put me on the tamat to give talks. Oh, it was the first time he asked me to give a talk and in Thai. My Thai was atrocious. And uh, and uh, he said, uh, he kind of announced on one part day that I was going to give a talk and I nearly, I, I panicked. I just got in such a state that I I just uh, really freaked out and I <laughs> said, oh, well, don't worry about it and kind of let, let me go. And laughing. And, uh, well, I got out of that. And then uh, it wasn't too distant future where I got, uh, he put me in another situation I couldn't get out of right on the spot. And uh, there I went up into the high seat and <coughs> And I was really, you know, just having to sit up there and then speak a language that you're not, you know, very confident in speaking Thai. Speaking English would be hard enough, but Thai is even more frightening. And then, then uh, just uh, beginning, and uh, of course the people were just very Thai people. Uh, I just wanted to hear if I had a voice. I think. I didn't have to say anything terribly profound or why. They just said uh, the simple things that I knew how to say in time. They said, oh, very good talk. <laughs> very good talk. And then the word got around all over Ubon. Uh, the the uh, Pratsumato gives very good talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very nice to be praised like that. Or the talk that you thought was pretty silly. <coughs> then, uh, but then the uh, the self consciousness. Then I became a really, you know, desiring to please everyone. I would, uh, I I would, uh, you know, when people asked me to give these talks, I'd always do it. And I wanted to please everyone, and because of that desire to please. Uh, then I would suffer because when I I'd say things and I'd look and I somebody get up and walk out or or uh, I'd imagine all these things you know just uh, people start yawning when I get into the high seat and I take it personally <laughs> and I would be sitting there and in Thailand sometimes they don't you know they they'll they'll just lay down on the floor and sleep right in front of you not all night fittings and. Things like this, so <laughs> I was getting offended. <laughs> Some one time, I remember on a, well, a katina, one of these katina ceremonies, where they, you, you give these kind of marathon talks. And uh, anyway, I was I became quite indignant. Uh, people were were leaving the sala, and and. <laughs> 
By the time I finished, there's hardly anyone left in the room. And I thought, I thought uh, I'm not going to give any more talks. If they're going to be that way, I'm not going to give any more talks. And I'm really offended. I'm fed up. This is, this is, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't have to do this. I didn't come here. I didn't become a monk to do this. And then... Uh, but the reflection on that mood was is this is this you know is this a skillful thing to follow and you start watching and start really in examining this sense of being offended wanting to please people and then being offended and and uh, wanting to to be accepted and then fear of being unacceptable uh, they work together and you know, they one Parts off the other, so I started using that that uh, that particular problem as a kind of deliberate upaya, or like a, something to really study, something that really hurt you and that was uh, a, a source of a lot of suffering in your life. But which you took and take this is this is where I'm suffering right now. This is what really drives me crazy, and and my heart gets offended by this, and I'm really can't stand it and all that. I take that and I I investigate it. <coughs> so th- then that was that because of that there was an increasing amount of strength. Because if I just followed oh, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm fed up. I didn't become a monk to do this. I'm just going to sit and practice. I want to go off to a cave. That was my kind of the whenever I get offended I, I want to go off to the cave. I don't want to be. I don't want to be involved in this. I want to go off to my cave. So this is like like that's why I encourage you to take what really hurts you and and, and really upsets you and really frightens you and use it as a as a skillful means. Because that's that's your karma. That's that's where that's that's where you need to to really look. Where you hurt. Where you, the pain is. Where the despair and misery are. That's that's the point. That's the sign. That's the first noble truth. That's offering itself for your reflection and understanding. Where the where when we don't do that, then we try to act, and we, we, we use the life always, and the life hurts us. Being a monk or nun becomes painful and upsetting because when when we don't when things don't go the way we want when it doesn't uh, when we don't get the results that we expected then we just feel disappointed and uh, disillusioned with it. And if we leave then, then we, we just repeat that pattern over and over again in our lives. When I was in graduate school, there was this, well, in Berkeley, there was this woman, a uh, very nice lady, she was with me in the seminars, Asian seminars, the American lady, and She'd been married about six, seven times. And uh, I said, why did, 
why did you get married so many times? <laughs> she said, well, I, didn't, I never liked marriage. I liked the romance. I liked the, the, the process of the, the relationship, the romance, and then the marriage. But then after that, I don't like it anymore. So they just goes, you know, because that just goes that far, never learns. And she's getting on into 40, so I imagine the opportunities for romance were lessening. So that the going from one thing to the next, repeating the same mistake. But this is where each one of us has to develop our practice, because you know where you hurt. You can't ask me to tell you, or, 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 you know, me to give you the skillful means. What I say, it's only for, you know, is an example of how I've done it. Not saying you, you must do it like I do. You must take the same skillful means, borrow my skillful means. I mean, if you can, if you, if you find it helpful, please do. But that's not what I'm really encouraging. Is, is each one of us has to learn from the way we are. And uh, that's why we need to know the way we are, not not try to. And if and if we don't know the way we are, if we just don't know who we are or what we are, that's the way we are. That's something to investigate. <laughs> just the feeling of not knowing who you are, because you don't have to be anyone. But whatever whatever is, whether it's a kind of anger, a kind of strong uh, anger or these kind of sharp passions or whether it's the, the more subtle forms of doubt and, and uh, despair that haunt your mind and, and cause you misery. With the developing of, of the heart practice, as you, then instead of, instead of, uh, of having, becoming emotionless and kind of just, you know, unfeeling, one be, one has the courage to feel life, rather than becoming a kind of brass or marble Buddha rupa with the same uh, physical expression, 24 hours a day. One is is, is instead as a, as a human being with these human bodies and their sensitive, their sense organs and the, their weaknesses and problems. One. Uh, one say isn't uh, isn't is, is willing to be sensitive has the courage and the the confidence and the faith to be totally sensitive to life rather than shrinking away and hiding you feel quite willing to take on life as as it comes to you you have a a, a kind of fearlessness that comes from understanding you don't you're not looking for a cave anymore you're not afraid of being offended or being misunderstood. You know how to deal with, how to work with uh, the, the problems of a community or a society or personal problems or relationships with others. These are no longer threatening uh, conditions to one because uh, you, when, you, when you can develop these bias and work with the suffering, and, and learn from it, then uh, you, you're not, you, you needn't be frightened of anything. 
because fear is always comes from that uh, is that state of, of uh, thinking that the problems are overwhelming or that they're more than what they are or that you're you're a hopeless case in believing it or that that there's a that you wouldn't be able to take it you wouldn't be able to stand it you would be completely overwhelmed or destroyed by this or that thing or whatever then we're frightened all the time because whatever we imagine is going to, I might get overwhelmed I might not be able if they ask me to give a talk and my tie's not good enough I couldn't stand it what if I said the wrong thing and even a simple thing can be overwhelming or be easily offended and somebody somebody gets up and walks out in the talk Fed up. I'm not going to give any more talks if that's the way that we find out they they have to go to the loo. They've been sitting there trying to pay attention because they're desperately interested in what you're saying, and then finally they realize they better get out quick. But then you can take it on a personal level. They don't like me. They don't like what I'm saying. They're getting out. They're leaving because I feel very offended by that. One can be that silly. But then it's all right to be offended rather than, than trying to not be offended by anything, but to use this feeling of being offended as and being upset or disturbed by things as, as a sign for practice. Because we're not trying to become somebody that has never offended by anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to become someone who doesn't, is never offended by anything at all, but I'm willing to use that feeling for practice. This is the Dhamma, the, the first noble truth that, that uh, I use, I develop. Because if, if that's the way I am, that's the character I have, then that's, 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 I can develop a skillful means around that. Use it for practice rather than seeing it as, a, as an obstacle to my practice. <coughs> 